Hello, I'm Sam Amon, and this is the 23rd episode of The Art of Asymmetrical Warfare. Today we'll be talking about the Jadids with a very special guest, Dr. Adib Talib. Today is an exciting episode as we have a very special guest with us. Dr. Adib Khalid will be discussing the Jadids, the doctrinal development, and how they fit within our greater narrative about the Russian and Central Asian civil wars. Dr. Khalid is Professor of Asian Studies and History, as well as Director of Middle Eastern Studies at Carleton College. He has published numerous works on Central Asia, including Making Uzbekistan, Nation, Revolution, and Empire in the Early USSR, and the Politics of Muslim Cultural Reform, Jadidism, in Central Asia. Thank you for uh, speaking with us. It's my pleasure. So the uh, first question I would love to start with is, who are the Jadids exactly? Uh, where are they located within Tsarist Central Asia? And what was the society they were trying to change like? Basically, it's an informal designation for a group of people who felt that their society needed to be reformed. They were mostly urban figures. They arise around the turn of the 20th century, so a generation into Russian rule. Uh, they are as much a product of the transformations that imperial conquest wrought in Central Asia as anything else. Basically, they are answering these questions such as, what happened to us? Why was Central Asia conquered? What went wrong? What needs to change? And what shape should that change take? They are urban dwellers, uh, most of them from the kind uh, sections of society that had a foot in both the worlds, uh, in the world that had broken upon Central Asia. Some of them are, come from merchant families who have uh, acquired new commercial interests. Um, and a lot of that has to do with cotton that nets Central Asia into the imperial economy and through that into the global economy. Many of them come from conventional backgrounds in the sense that they come from families with Islamic learning. A younger generation, people who come, come of age around 1910 or so, come from a larger uh, segment of society. What they have in common is they have an experience of the new world while being located in traditional segments of society. A lot of them have traveled. Travel becomes easier with the advent of railways. And one of the th things that a number of the major figures share in common is travel mostly to other Muslim countries, uh, other Muslim parts of the Russian Empire, Azerbaijan. Uh, it was called Trans-Caucasia uh, uh, then, or the Ottoman Empire, or India. Uh, the other development that shapes their emergence is the arrival of print, uh, printing, printed books, and newspapers. Uh, newspapers start pub uh, being published in Central Asia only after the Russian Revolution of 1905. But uh, before that, newspapers start arriving from all uh, parts of the Muslim world. So th this is, I think, basically their, their location. Bukhara, by the way, was a protectorate. It was never fully incorporated into the Russian Empire. So the Emir of Bukhara sat on his throne, and the Russians let him rule as he saw fit. 
uh, as long as you know he had no foreign policy and he had his the Bukharan economy was made part of the Russian. Uh, but internally, he had lots and lots of um, power. So in Bukhara, the Jadid had a slightly different outlook because there was still a glimmer of Muslim sovereignty left there in a way that was totally gone in, in Turkestan. Perfect. Uh, thank you. Um, you had mentioned that the Jadids were kind of part of both worlds, the Russian and then the Central Asian that they had traveled. And so it kind of leads me to my second question, which is, in, you know, in the early 20th century, the Muslim world is engaging in debates over modernization mm -hmm. and Islamic identity, similar to Jadid's. Um, where do they fit within this discourse and who or what um, influences their movement? That's an excellent question. Uh, so they're an integral part of this uh, phenomenon that all Muslim societies are grappling with at some, some level. The 19th century had seen a turning of the tables uh, against Europe. The European powers had conquered numerous Muslim societies so that by 1914, when Europe goes to war, they're basically, I, I like to think of it as one and a half sovereign Muslim states left. Uh, that's the Ottoman Empire and then Iran, where the sovereignty was really quite compromised. And all other Muslim societies are under some form of non-Muslim European colonial rule, whether it's British or French or Dutch, or in this case, Russian. So the question was very much, you know, what has gone wrong and what do we need to do about it? In the states that remain independent, such as the Ottoman Empire and Iran as well, the question was, how do we safeguard the state? And how do we strengthen the state? So there, in, in those states and in Bukhara too, where there is some sort of Muslim sovereignty left, the state often was in charge of that. The Ottoman reform was often driven by the, by the state. In other places, then you have other groups uh, coming out of local cultural traditions that seek answers to the question of what needs to be done. And in all of that, there is a great deal of interconnectedness, but there are also local specificities. So in some ways, there is this uh, strain of thought that is usually called Muslim modernism, where people basically argue that Islam is compatible with the modern world that has emerged. And if anything, that only being by, by being modern can Muslims be good Muslims. And this argument gets played out in multiple ways. Among the Muslims of India, you have the Aligarh movement. Among, there are several strains of that, but the big one is to establish a Muslim university that would train Muslim uh, notables in English learning as well as in Islam, but that Islam is then interpreted in a new way. In Egypt, you have, which is under a British protectorate, after 1882, you have a similar kind of argument arising where it's not tied to an English language university, but people like Muhammad Abdu and Rashid Bida basically argue that uh, the Islamic tradition has to be looked at with new eyes 
in order to make it compatible with the modern age. And a lot of these ideas crisscross, uh, and that's where the role of newspapers uh, becomes very significant. But all of these people are also addressing questions and uh, problems that are specific to them. So the idea of establishing an English language university to train Muslim elites in India is not really relevant in Turkestan, in Central Asia. There, one of the bigger uh, models is uh, the works of uh, Ismail Begaspirinsky, who is a Crimean Tatar noble. Crimea uh, was annexed by the Russian Empire in 1789 uh, on slightly different terms. So uh, Gasparinsky actually has the legal status of a noble in the Russian Empire. And in 1883, starts publishing a newspaper calling for reform of Muslim education, use the use of a new method of education, not at the level of a university, but at the level of elementary school. And the fact that he is in the same imperial order as Central Asia um, makes his work more relevant, perhaps, than anything that comes out of the Ottoman Empire or Egypt or India. But again, Crimea had a different place in the Russian Empire than Bukhara or Turkestan. So it's not simply that these ideas are coming and being transplanted and being reproduced. They are being appropriated and reshaped by in um, local conditions. There is no Russian nobility in Central Asia. And the Russians conquer Central Asia. They do not really incorporate uh, the new population into their system of ranks and standings. That was uh, the term that was um, used. They all remain basically natives. And so you don't really have that kind of a, a, an elite that of which Gasperinsky was part of. So all these ideas are coming and people are making use of them as they see fit, as is necessary for them. The one interesting thing here is that most of the ideas of reform come from other Muslim societies and not from Russia. This is quite interesting that, I mean, the, the Russian is there, but what people are reading, they're reading in Ottoman or Crimean Tatar or Tatar or Persian. And it's even when they read Russian or European works, it's often through Turkic language translations. And Russian education remains quite modest uh, in Central Asia. All right. So I hope that the answer is in there somewhere. No, that's perfect. Thank you. Um, it helps us understand how just big this movement was. And so there seems to be two key elements of Jazid's doctrine. One is the, the role of Islam, and then the other is this idea of a nation. So I, I want to talk about Islam first. I think sometimes in the West, when we think of modernization, we think of secularization or even anti-Islam. But that's the Jazids were not like that. But their opponents, the ulam, the ulama would make that claim. So what what are the key differences between like the Jadid's vision of Islam and what the ulamas were like teaching and trying to protect? Okay, so that is in some ways the, the fundamental thing that the ulama, the term basically means, uh, is the Arabic plural for the learned. And these are people who are educated in a, as they see in the tradition of inflation. They're, uh, for them, they're part of the tradition and all that that brings with it, these cultural capital, the social capital, the moral capital, 
And for them, the only way to know Islam is through these texts and through these chains of learning. The fundamental idea there is that knowledge about Islam resides in the texts themselves, uh, the, the Quran and the Hadith, the sayings of the Prophet, and in history, and these chains of transmission of knowledge that the ulama uh, embody by commenting on each other and writing commentaries and super commentaries and all of that. And in many ways, the Jadids come out of the tradition, but then the Jadids uh, become completely disenchanted with that. For them, that only breeds corruption. And so ultimately, these are two different visions of Islam and how to know Islam. Yeah, the idea that the only way you can move away from Islam or, or any religion is through secularism is, is, uh, is a bit problematic. I mean, the, the Christian Reformation was not a secular movement. It was a reform of Christianity. And the same happens in Islam. Islam is internally plural, like all religions, and you can take many different positions. You can use the same texts to arrive at even diametrically opposed positions on any given question. So in some ways, this is what's happening. The ulama might not have called the Javids anti-Islam. They would have called them... Uh, there, there's a wide variety of terms in the Islamic tradition for um, either, they would say they are Beijing, uh, irreligious or unobservant or ignorant or yes, maybe, or atheists or, uh, or something like that, that they have lost uh, their religion. For the Jadids, it was the ulama who, because of the foolishness of their ways, as the Jadids might put it, had corrupted Islam and they did, didn't even know what real Islam was. So it's really a debate over how to know Islam and what Islam is and ought to be and how it, one should know it and how one should practice it. The other key component is this idea of, an, of a nation. And it seems like the Jadids try to form a nation around this, this idea of, of Turkestan central Turkism, which isn't the same as pan-Turkism. So could you talk a little bit about what it, it is, like what Turkism is, how does it differ, um, mm -hmm. and how does it affect the development of what they consider to be a Central Asian state? Okay. Yeah, and this is actually something that evolves quite rapidly. Uh, and the Russian Revolution actually has a lot to do with that. I mean, the key idea, uh, so let me go back in some ways. What leads the Jadids to the nation is the idea of progress. And that's sort of the missing link there, that uh, once Jadidism arises, um, you know, beginning, you know, in the most generic sense with Gasparinsky in the 1880s, there are these debates going on in the Ottoman Empire for longer. The whole question is, you know, why, why have we been left behind? Why are we weak? Why have we been conquered? And the idea there is that other societies have achieved progress. And progress is a pretty radically new idea that ultimately comes, I mean, the word has been around, but this idea of this ever-increasing nonstop change and ever-increasing levels of perfection and excellence and all of that, that sort of comes out of the, the European Enlightenment. But for the Jadis, it was obvious that some countries are farther ahead because they have conquered us and they make bigger and better machines and bigger and better gunships and 
and all of that. So there is an absolute fascination with progress. The idea for the Ottomans was to save the state. Uh, you save the state by acquiring what the Europeans have. And in that sense, there is at this time really no discourse of a separate Islamic path to this or that. You need to acquire modernity and civilization through progress. And the uh, Jadid in Central Asia are quite um, invested in that. But then how do you achieve progress? Through the cultivation of knowledge, but also how do you do that? Society has to pull itself up by its bootstraps. The empire is not going to do it for you. And that, this is a bit of social Darwinism that, again, was quite obvious to people at this time that if you don't achieve progress, you get conquered. You lose your sovereignty. And once you have lost your sovereignty, you might just lose everything else. It'd be completely marginalized. So these are the fears. And, but then how do you recognize the responsibilities? How does society recognize the responsibility to each other? And here is the idea that, yes, we are not just a bunch of people. We are not just a bunch of tribes or so on and so forth, but we are a single community. And for that, the term nation uh, is quite important initially. And, and that, that was also the big thing in, in Europe in the late 19th century that France has achieved all of this because it's a nation. Britain has gone and conquered half the world because it's a nation. People are uh, aware of their national belonging and are proud of it. And we need to be that as well. So initially, the idea of the nation comes first. And before the revolution, for most of these, they would have said the nation is the Muslims of Turkestan. And then Bukhara comes to be imagined also as a, a nation and a homeland. But there's always this, the, uh, the ethnic argument is also coming in. It's coming in through the normal practice of the Russian state or of Russian ethnographers that seek to figure out the ethnic composition of the people they have conquered. There are, there's other work being done in, uh, in Orientalism, uh, in Europe, in Turkology, where again, the idea that the world is divided into different nations uh, defined by language and culture and ethnicity. And all of this becomes quite compelling to the Jadids. The Ottomans are completely taken by that as a sense that ethnic solidarity is the best kind. That works. Look at Germany, look at Japan. And again, these are assumptions that people have. Today, a hundred years later, we can go back and find all sorts of problems with that. But at that time, this, these were some of the assumptions they were working with. So uh, the idea that Central Asians or most Central Asians are ethnically Turkic, that they have their own languages uh, that distinguish them from Iranians and Arabs, say, not to mention the Russians. And that is something that not only should they take pride in, but only by taking pride in, can they, in that can they be uh, properly welded together as a community. So the ethnic awareness is sort of new. A hundred years before that, people would have said, yes, we speak Turkic. Um, 
the Tajiks speak uh, in, uh, Iranian language were different, but it had not ever been seen as the, a central node of identity. And so that is something new, and that is there in uh, my first book, which sort of ends at the Russian Revolution, the ethnicity is there, but it's really in the Russian Revolution, uh, which was a moment when all sorts of new possibilities opened up in 1917 with the collapse of the, of the empire. And there's a new world being born. Everyone is very keenly aware of that. And new possibilities are open. And here there's this the fascination with Turkism really uh, kicks off. All of a sudden, a new press emerges in 1917. And when I first read those newspapers, I was quite struck by just how open and strident the awareness of their Turkic origins is. So that's Turkism, this awareness and taking pride in your Turkic origins and seeing that as a very important part of who you are as a Muslim. Pan-Turkism is, I think historically it has been a very marginal figure. It was the idea that all Turks in the world, from the Ottoman Empire, the Russian Empire, the Qing Empire should all join together in a single state. Yes, there have been proponents of that idea that have been out there, but I think all the ink that has been spilled on the dangers of pan-Turkism has really come from imperial authorities, either the Russian or the British, uh, and then later the Soviets, and even the Chinese Communist Party were all, all saw pan-Turkism as this, the specter that's haunting them. In actual fact, the uh, pan-Turkism has been a very minor phenomenon. The much bigger thing is this shift in identity that happens when people begin to see their, their ethnic origins as significant. And then you find new linkages, and so all of a sudden, uh, yes, the Turks of Central Asia are related to the to the Turks of the Ottoman Empire, and uh, Gasperinsky in the Crimea, and all those Tatars in Kazan are cousins. Turkism can be a, a polyphonic discourse, where there is, uh, in Central Asia, the way it, it takes shape in the early Soviet years is that we are very proud of our Turkic heritage, which goes back to the court of Timur, and it comes out in the shape of the Chagatai Eastern Turkic literary standard, which is quite different from the Western standard that developed in Istanbul at the Ottoman court. And Fitrat, who spent four years in Istanbul, basically, and he's an Ottomanophile in many ways, but he says that our literature, meaning the Chagatai, literary tradition is one of the richest in the Islamic world and we don't really need to take any lessons from the Tatars or the Ottomans on what our language should be. So that's what I mean by Central Asia-centered Turkism in which the Ottomans are our cousins and they're fine but they have no business telling us what to do or what our language should be or the Tatars for that matter or the Azerbaijanis or the Crimeans. Because everyone's family is just a little bit uh, complicated and don't necessarily want to listen to your, <laughs> your uncle or, or your older cousin. Um, so while the Jadis are, are 
formulating these idea ideas, um, how are they trying to spread their message? It seems like it's through education and, and media, particularly the arts. Why do they use these method methods specifically? Um, and how successful are they at sharing their doctrine? So before 1970, I mean, that was the only thing they, uh, that was possible. So one of the reasons why reform takes this shape is that in the Russian empire, there was no political participation certainly none before 1905. And then after the, there's a glimmer, there's, uh, but then Central Asia as a colonial periphery is again disenfranchised. So the only way you can do it is by the society helping itself, pulling itself up by its bootstraps. The Russian empire was a particularist empire in which different groups had different rights and different obligations. And they were all assigned by the emperor. Uh, so you could use your own language in your schools and Islamic courts continue to exist and so on and so forth. So there was that cultural space. And the newspapers then become uh, available after the Russian conquest, travel becomes possible. So this is what shaped the contours of reform. Theater, they are really absolutely mesmerized by for some reason. Uh, and that, I think, is where sort of the Russian influence is perhaps the most visible, that theater is a major art form in Russia. And this is where it, it just seemed commonsensical to them that a society that has that's educated, that has achieved progress, should have theater. So it's, it's in some ways very prominent in that sense. How successful they were, all right, so there are people in the field, people with whom I have some differences of opinion, shall we say, who've argued that Jadidism has just uh, has been blown out of all proportion, that it was not important at all. It was, they, they basically uh, adopt the rhetoric of the ulama to uh, say that the Jadids were a very minor part of the uh, of the cultural landscape. I disagree. I think that, yes, I mean, the countryside is a whole different matter, but in the cities by 1917, um, Jadidism, the new schools, and the critique of the old order was a part of the urban social fabric. It had not triumphed, it was not the majority opinion. No one has ever said that. And they were, it was certainly not the only voice out there, but it was a voice. And ultimately, what happens after 1917 is partly because Jadidism had emerged as a part of the cultural spectrum in Central Asia before, before the revolution. The revolution then turns everything upside down opens up new possibilities. Um, in 1917 itself, all of a sudden now you can have elections, politics is possible, and the ulama actually win all the municipal elections that are held, there are many, many, many in 1917. And there is quite a bit of conflict between them and the Jadids. And so once the revolution, uh, once Soviet power begins to be established in, in the cities of Central Asia, then the, a lot of the Jadids find a lot more in common with, uh, with, the, with the new regime and the promises for rapid progress that it is uh, offering. 
but also those convulsions and the conflict with the ulama and the defeat at their hands radicalizes the jadids in many ways. They say that the old methods simply are urging people to, you know, of exhortation, don't really work and they acquire a, a new kind of fascination with the kind of methods that of, of revolutionary action that the uh, Soviets embody. That's actually really interesting. I kind of want to pull out that thread a little bit more because like 1917, the revolution happens, everything changes. And there seems to be opportunity for the Jadids to take advantage. So yes. what exactly are they doing? Um, how successful do they end up being? Again, 1917 is a very complicated period. And in some ways, you know, I've grown weary of even calling it a revolution. There was a revolution in Petrograd. What happens in Central Asia is really ultimately state collapse. By the fall of 1917, the Russian Empire has sort of ceased to exist in any meaningful way. And that is why you have a civil war. But I would push, I mean, you know, the, all the textbooks say that the civil war started in April of 1918 when the Czech Legion did this or that, but Russia was in a state of civil war really by the fall of 1917. Uh, and in Central Asia, the situation was even more complex. The Amir of Bukhara was trying to win full independence. There was conflict between the Jadid and the Ulama in the cities. And the Russians had all the guns. And ultimately, by the fall of 1917, it was the uh, Tashkent Soviet that was 100% Russian that had taken power on its own, basically not as a representative of Petrograd. And then they ran into trouble with Russian peasant settlers elsewhere. So the conflict that then ensues is multifaceted. In all of that, uh, the Jadids in the cities of Central Asia, basically the, Moscow is forcing the Russian settler socialists in Turkestan to share power. So by the spring of 1918, some Central Asians start entering these new organs of power. Many of them are Jadids. In, in 1917, the ulama had bested them. And now there's a chance to use these institutions to fight back against them. So in, nine, in the first couple of years, there is I mean, total chaos in many ways. But what the Jadids do is um, they enter these local Soviets and use their power to uh, confiscate property to establish their schools. They start publishing. The theater actually booms in the darkest winters of the Civil War. The Tashkent theater scene is very lively. And so there is this sense that now we can use these methods to do all the things that we had been exhorting people to do and they were not doing it. The Soviet rule is not established in any meaningful way until I would say maybe 1925 even, but certainly by, uh, up until 1923, the so Soviet rule is quite iffy. I mean, it's there, but what they can actually do is uh, quite limited. So here is this space in which these new revolutionary organs can be staffed by people who then put them to their own use. And that leads us uh, perfectly to our final question, which is actually the relationship between the Jadids and the, the Bolsheviks or the Soviets. Um, 
what brings them together? It seems a little weird of a pairing. Yes, <laughs> no, it's totally weird. And uh, again, I think, uh, and, and it's not, I would say it is uh, circumstances more than anything else. It's not an ideological alliance. Uh, it's not an alliance at all. And there is this conventional wisdom that all the Jadis became communists. And, uh, and even in my first book, I had said something like that. And I'm now very sorry I did that because it, it, that, that's too hackneyed telling. What happens is that new possibilities open up. Uh, the old regime is gone. The old institutions are gone. And new ones are being built. And the Soviets, the Bolsheviks are keen on doing that. They're also keen on uh, indigenization, of bringing people from the, no the non-Russians, from the non-Russian parts of the former Russian empire into the new organ so they can think of Soviet rule as their own and not simply a, a successor to the Tsars. So there are all these compulsions that the Soviets have. They also want to reshape society. I mean, that, that's a fundamental part of that. They're not just bringing in a new political system. They had very utopian notions of changing the world and transforming everything. And in their, their political participation, literacy, public health, changing the position of women, all of these things are, the, are part of the Bolshevik ag uh, agenda. And these are also many of the same things that the Jadids have always wanted. Maybe for a different reason with a different logic behind it. But they, there is a substantial overlap in the desires of uh, transformation for these two sides. They come together not because of an alliance. The Bolsheviks were not fond of alliances. Uh, they saw themselves as the, the vanguard party. They didn't need a, a tactical cooperation is one thing. An alliance is a whole different thing. So for the Jadids, here's this opportunity. Let's jump in and make use of it. For the Bolsheviks, I mean, if you're going to establish new institutions, who's going to staff them? Especially if you want them to have some sort of, an, uh, some sort of indigenization. Ten years after 1917, when Soviet, uh, the Soviets had a sense that their power was quite tenuous in Central Asia, and they wanted to basically, the, the way they talked about it is, there are these forces we can use. And they had no control over uh, the, the press. Up until 1927, Every, at the end of every month, the Agitation and Propaganda Bureau of uh, the party would type up a report on this is what was published in this month's newspapers. Uh, because they really, you know, who's going to censor these before publication? So it was this situation uh, in which the opportunity was there and the control was uh, tenuous that the Jadid and the Bolsheviks sort of come together. Their logic were different. And a lot of the Jadids actually did not join the Communist Party. What you have is the rise of another cohort, uh, a younger cohort of people who are mobilized after 1917, who joined the party without any prior experience in cultural reform. And many of them share a great deal with the Jadids, but 
they are coming from a different place, they're younger, and ultimately that cohort that sort of displaces the Jeddis beginning with around 1927. Thank you so much. Uh, this is such a fascinating topic. We could talk all day. Um, before I let you go, though, I want to give you a chance to talk about any of your new projects that you were working on um, or any thoughts you have about where the field is, the, the Central Asian Studies field is, is heading. So, well, I, I've been working on a general history of Central Asia, actually, that includes um, both Russian and Chinese Central Asia, so, yeah, Xinjiang and the five republics of Central Asia from the 18th century to the present. And it should be out in May Perfect. from uh, uh, Princeton University Press. So uh, actually, that's, I'm, I'm doing the, the last bit of uh, proofreading on that. Uh, the Central Asian field, I think, has been utterly transformed. Uh, so I started graduate school in the fall of 1986 when Gorbachev had been in power for a year and a half and there was no reason to believe that the Soviet Union will disappear before I get my PhD. And uh, so what I thought I might be doing at that time and what we have, has been we have been able to do is just entirely, you know, it, it's a revolution in, in the field. We can travel, we can share with our colleagues over there. Uh, we can do archival research. In, so all of that has been utterly transformed. And I think now, when it began, a lot of the work came out of Soviet and Russian studies programs and often asked questions really about the Russian state in Central Asia rather than Central Asia itself. I think over the years that has also shifted. There are lots and lots of people now who work with Central Asian languages and really ask questions about Central Asia rather than the Russian or the Chinese uh, empire. So uh, there is lots of uh, good work happening. And the fact that we have debates, um, some of those debates could perhaps be a little less sharp, but that's the sign of a, of a robust field. And in all of this, I think perhaps one of the least known parts of all of this is the Civil War era, uh, especially the, the military and political history of the period. So good luck to you. Thank you. Um, and thank you, Dan, for coming on to the podcast. I look forward to reading your new book. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening. We hoped you enjoyed this very special episode. Um, we have referenced and will continue to reference Dr. Talid's work heavily during this season of the Art of Asymmetrical Warfare and recommend his book, Made in Uzbekistan, if you want to learn more about the Jadids and their relationship with the Soviets and the modern state of Uzbekistan. You can pre-order Dr. Talid's newest book, Central Asia, A New History from the Imperial Conquest to the Present, from your favorite bookstore, although I recommend Semitolan if you are in Chicago. You can listen to our whole catalog, including our other amazing interviews, on our website, where you can also sign up for our newsletter, www.sanswarroom.com, as well as on Spotify and iTunes. Be sure to leave us a review and consider contributing to our Ko-Fi. You can also follow us on Twitter at AOA Warfare and Instagram. Until next time, stay safe, practice social distancing, and wash your hands.